I'm Susanna Marsden, and welcome to Job Shadowing HE, the podcast that delves into the roles of people working in higher education. Each episode hears from guests about what's involved in their role, the career path that led to it, and tips on how to get in and get on in these jobs. My guests in this episode are from two of the UK's higher education performing arts conservatoires, Ashley Hope, Head of Access and Participation at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, and James Rue, who is Access and Participation Manager at the Leeds Conservatoire. Access and student success remain an ongoing challenge for many parts of the HE sector. The UK specialist conservatoires are no exception to this context, and in fact, encounter major additional challenges in light of the significant decline in the funding and provision of performing arts education in the primary and secondary state education sector. In this episode, Ashley and James open the doors of the Guildhall School and the Leeds Conservatoire and tell us more about their institutions, the challenges of access in the performing arts and the roles that they play to dispel and dismantle barriers. So welcome Ashley and welcome James. Thanks very much for being my guest today. Let's begin our conversation um, with what a conservatoire is. They form an important part of the higher education sector, covering disciplines including music, dance, drama, production arts and circus. But each institution has its own distinct identity and discipline focus. Ashley, you work at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Are conservatoires all about being conservative and conserving the past? Absolutely not, Susanna. So at Guildhall, we believe that conserving means evolution, not preservation. So we celebrate the achievements of the past and present whilst proactively embracing what we can be in the future. And what's the specific focus of a conservatoire degree? A conservatoire education offers world-class professional training in partnership with distinguished artists, companies and ensembles and responds to the wider industry. So our location in London, being right next door to the Barbican, really supports these industry connections for our students. And they get to work on some amazing projects. So this week we've had music students working with Cameron McIntosh's Les Mis creative team, like singing on stage in the concert hall. And our production arts students are actually supporting a London Fashion Week show as well. So lots of opportunities to work with the industry. For students to be involved in those sorts of activities, I guess it's quite an intensive environment, certainly in comparison to some university courses. The training at a conservatoire is really intensive and we've got very small class sizes, lots of one-to-one and small group work. So what I always say to students that are exploring the possibility of Guildhall is that you actually get really good value for your tuition fee money because you get so much individualised support, so many contact hours. It offers a very different university experience. Um, And just in terms of size and scope of Guildhall, we've only got around a thousand students and that's smaller than some sixth form colleges. And they train in music, acting and production arts. Um, So a broad range of the performing arts. And James, what's the focus and outlook at Leeds Conservatoire? So Leeds Conservatoire is a little different. Um, We have about 1,500 students across our courses and our pathways are differentiated by genre rather than instrument, um, which is usually what you'd find in a conservatoire. Um, We were the first to first European Conservatoire to launch a jazz degree back in in the 90s. And then we were also the first in the UK to launch music production degrees. 
Um, we've only had drama courses um, for the last few years, but we're already beginning to push what an actor training course should be. And to great success as well, we've got all, already got graduates in the West End in films and our major national tours, as well as some that are making their own work, um, either with small companies or setting up their own theatre companies as well. So we've really been pushing the boundaries of what's taught in a conservatoire for a while now. And we were also the first conservatoire to completely remove our audition fees uh, for all applicants. So we're really trying to remove barriers to high quality music and drama training as well. That being said, we still subscribe to the shared ideas of what conservatoire training should look and feel like though. Um, and we work with organisations like Conservatoires UK. So our courses are super practical. They've got dedicated one-to-one -one tuition as part of them. And our students get networking from their dot with industry professionals. So it really helps to set them up for a great career. And for some of the disciplines that you've both just talked about there, and I'm, I'm thinking music performance as a prime example, a discipline that you both share across your institutions, access to degree courses at your institutions require a student to already have advanced musical skills and to have those skills require some prior opportunity in primary and secondary education. Now I know there's a government national plan for music education that focuses on music hubs which I think support instrumental lessons and group music making and that's in addition to what happens in a more formal classroom setting. James, in relation to the music hubs, tell us a bit more about what the opportunity context looks like from an access perspective. Music hubs exist to support schools to provide every child to access some music making, although the success of this varies across the country. I have to say that we both work with some music hubs that are doing some really outstanding work despite enormous pressures. The funding for them has been flat since 2012 in England and actually from September 2024, the current 116 local authority music hubs were going to be merging into just 43 regional music hubs. And there are some concerns around how this will impact resource and access to music. The geographical coverage of each of these 43 hubs is now huge. Um, and each hub has also been open to bids to run it, for, including from private, private arts organisations as well, which are sporadically located um, and bring their own approach to the work. And this will further reduce the consistency in access across England. Um, the Campaign for the Arts highlighted that in 2009-10, most primary age school children participated in music activities, but by 2019-20, only 35% did. So just to reflect on some of what you've said there, James, for young people in the state sector, there's been a significant decline in Music Hub funding. There's a potential risk coming to the Music Hub infrastructure. And the data is showing that what adds up to 60% drop in the proportion of young people in primary schools participating in music activities. I mean, it's quite jaw dropping stuff when you think about the value and joy that music making can bring, never mind nurturing the talent. Ashley, I almost don't want to ask the question, but what does the picture look like from a state education classroom perspective? Yeah, so thinking about um, the pandemic, that exacerbated that situation much further. So teachers had to pivot and really focus on those core subjects, make sure that the pupils were getting access to the maths, English, science support that they needed. And music, unfortunately, really took a back seat during that time and it's really struggling to recover. And um, so there was a survey run by the ISM that said that a significant proportion of teachers that responded to that survey said that they just completely cut music and there was just no music happening in their school now. And then if you look at some quite rough figures, I've been doing a lot of analysis on this, and if we look at those figures, it looks like in 22-23, 
around 10% of state-funded schools entered pupils into A-level music exams, compared to around 30% of private schools in that time. And we also know that independent schools have a really thriving programme of enrichment activity outside of their core subjects. And James, you've got some research there about the state-private school split? Yeah, there's some been, been some recent research by Ashton and Ashton that found that top private schools have invested more in the arts, which has subsequently become uh, come to play an increasingly important role in the education that they provide. And it is starting to lead to the emergence of a two-system education system in England. So the children in private schools have access to music making, orchestras, theatre productions, etc. So their pupils are likely to access the, this irrespective of whether they formally study it or not. And if pupils aren't taking the subjects, then there are fewer teachers to teach them as well. And we can see a reduction in music teachers. This is only 27% of the target for newly trained music teachers was met last year. And then if we look at the A-level and GCSE qualifications that are being gained by young people, um, so in England specifically, music entries are down at A-level 9.8% since 2018 and drama is actually down 18.3%. So pupils just aren't being put forward for these qualifications anymore. GCSE entries in the same time frame, so since 2018, there is a 16.1% drop for music entries and 15% drop for drama. And this is actually despite more entries overall for both of those qualifications. So it's making up a really, really small proportion of the entries that are happening. It's actually less than 1% for both A-levels and GCSEs. And we think that this is likely linked to the English baccalaureate um, because the EBAC subjects account for the majority of GCSE entries now. And unfortunately, the performing arts don't count towards that. And if schools don't need to have a subject that counts towards that, then they're not going to offer them, unfortunately, and they will focus on the subjects that do. Clearly, what you've both described there is firstly really sad, but more practically, undoubtedly presents a massively challenging context for conservatoires and for you and your roles to enable broader and fairer access to your higher education courses? Yeah, so this educational landscape is really detrimental to our prospective conservatoire student pipeline. And um, so, yeah, like particularly in music, the standard of entry to our institutions is really high. So, for example, at Guildhall, a classical vi uh, violinist is looking at at least 10 years of training before they are conservatoire ready. Um, and this level of training comes with significant financial and time investment. So it's really a commitment of the whole family, to be honest, because the child is going to need to attend classes in an evening or on a weekend and the whole family are going to have to go so that it can be around for them. And you can't really be self-taught in the violin. There's an expectation that you can sight read music, that you've got a wide repertoire, that you meet examination standards, which also cost money, that you've had performance opportunities so that you can succeed at audition and as a student. Um, and it just all comes with further investment, time and money being ploughed into someone to hopefully get to the standard of entry. So yeah, big barriers. And James, I guess that even where those prior opportunities have been available and that potential talent is being nurtured, it's possible that conservatoire training might not be that well known about. 
There is obviously a huge amount more we could discuss in relation to arts education and the unique barriers that young people can face, both pre and post degree. But we also wanted to highlight that raising the profile of conservatoires is vitally important to our work, as often young people and their teachers and advisors are much more familiar with traditional universities. So much of our work involves raising awareness of our institutions and degree programmes and just getting young people through our doors. We've covered a lot of context there in relation to the environment in which you undertake your roles. Let's pause on that context for a moment, we'll come back to it later, and look a bit more about your actual roles. You each head up access and participation in your institutions. Ashley, tell us some more about what your role involves. So I've been at Guildhall for five and a half years now. And in that time, I've been fortunate enough to progress my career and build a really lovely team and an amazing portfolio of activity to try and tackle some of those challenges and barriers. Working in a small institution means that you have to do a little bit of everything. So a week for me could include preparing board papers, writing regulatory documents, presenting to senior leaders, meeting internal and external stakeholders, chatting with students, running a workshop, planning an event for young people, managing the team and the budget, sitting on hardship panel, watching a student show, writing evaluations, answering emails, moving furniture, like literally anything. Um, it's a hugely varied role, but I'm always really happy to muck in and get the work done. And I think that that's really essential at a small institution. You've got to be available to help other teams. So we support enrolment, graduation, open days. Like We always want to be involved in as much as we can. But I really love the variety. It means that when I'm working on something that's more challenging and intense, like the current access and participation plan development, I know that there's some light relief in there somewhere. I can go and see a show and give myself a break for half an hour. Um, and we're in a really rare position for heads of access in the sector in that me and James are still very much involved in the delivery. So we actually get to work with the young people and the students. I remember what it's all for and why we are putting ourselves through this and actually doing the sort of statutory requirements that we have to do. And, and James, tell us about how you got into access and your role at Leeds Conservatoire. Yeah, so I came into access work through the Office of Students Union Connect programme, uh, first working with HEP South Yorkshire uh, and then through Go High West Yorkshire for Leeds Conservatoire. So I've had quite a varied experience in different size organisations after starting my career in teaching back in 2017. I totally echo what Ashley has said. Um, you really do need to be a bit of a jack of all trades and a small specialist. Resources and capacity are so limited. And particularly for me at the moment, I'm a team of one, um, but I do have some wonderful support from other teams around my institution. A lot of my work at the moment is around our access and participation plan submission coming up later this year. But typically I'm designing intervention strategies, developing evaluation practices, researching best practice as well as sharing this work with my colleagues to help embed these. Um, I'm also heavily involved in our EDI work. Um, as there's so much overlap between these two areas, it really helps in taking a coordinated approach in embedding them side by side. Um, I also still do a lot of work with Go High West Yorkshire. Um, so I'm the chair of one of their strategy groups and I'm the, also the co-chair of their Males on Free School Meals network. And this allows Leeds Conservatoire to benefit from working with a wider sphere of providers with lots of experience between us. And we can make some quite big changes in our reason uh, in our region. And most recently, that all 13 Go High West Yorkshire institutions have adopted a shared definition for what care experience means for students applying to us. And that really helps 
support that group when applying. They don't have to try and meet several different sets of criteria. It's just one that's standard across West Yorkshire. So you've, you've both been involved in access and participation for several years and, and cutting across there as you talked about a number of activities. Ashley, what have been the pivotal experiences or steps that have taken you to the position that you have today? So I have actually reached a decade in access and participation recently, um, but I've been involved for much longer than that because I was a participant on Newcastle University's Widening Participation Partners Programme. So that was 15 years ago. And that honestly was such a pivotal moment for me. It really, the summer school that I did, it really brought me out of my shell. I was really shy in sixth form. I'm taking part in that fortnight just yeah, it was transformative for me. Some of my closest friends are girls that I bonded with through those couple of weeks and it really prepared me for the higher education experience. It also gave me a contextual offer for my English literature degree at Newcastle. So I feel like every experience I've had since then, I really owe to that initial experience of partners. And that programme's still running and my younger brother actually took part last year. So my family are really indebted to widening participation and particularly the partners programme. And we just benefit so much from the sector and this work that's going on. Um, So that's always been my main driver. Everything I do comes back to what did me and my family experience at that time. Um, So from there... I worked for the Access to Leeds team at the University of Leeds, which was the most amazing start to my professional experience. And I can see how that influences how I run things now. So going to work at that time, I was 22. It was so much fun. I had such good friends in the office. I was really close to my team and my managers. We just had the best time at work. And that really adds so much when you're doing access and participation work. If you're enjoying it, then I think that that's really valuable. Um, I then moved to London and worked in another Russell Group University for a little bit before I joined Guildhall. So I never actually had an aspiration to be the head of a department. I really love working with young people and I was really good at it and really good at running events. And I was a bit scared to progress and have to do all the really serious work. And it felt like a lot of responsibility. Um, but at the time of getting my promotion, I had a really amazingly supportive manager Um, So she was developing the head of access and participation role. And by the time it was ready to be advertised, we really both felt I was ready for it and I was kind of already doing it. And it just was made so much sense for me to progress in that way. And she was really encouraging. And I'm so grateful to her for that. I definitely wouldn't have progressed as quickly in a larger institution. Um, It was so great to have my potential recognised. I know that I could just learn the harder parts of the role whilst I was doing it and really grow in a really supportive environment. So yeah, really appreciative of that. And James, what have been the pivotal steps for you? For me, it's been it's been the co-chair of the Males on Free School Meals Network um, for Go High West Yorkshire. That started out life as a white working class males network. I'm from that background myself. I grew up in an ex-mining community in South Yorkshire and was eligible for the old aim higher program when I was at school. But being queer, I never really felt like I fit into the activities as it was so much based on sport or construction. And that's just not me. Um, It could have gone really wrong for me, but thankfully I had parents who were passionate about me going to university. Um, So the work I've done with the network so far and with the support of my co-chair and Go Highway Structure, we've renamed the network to be more inclusive and have also made it so that anyone who identifies as male can access the provision we offer, not not just those who were assigned male at birth. 
I'm also very grateful for the wonderful critical friendship Ashley and I have developed since meeting. No question is absolutely stupid and no idea is too wild. And some wonderful collaborative work for our institution has come out of a chance encounter. education institutions do come in lots of shapes and sizes. Conservatoires are small and specialist and far fewer students than in many universities. Ashley, you've said a bit about this already, but what is it specifically that you see as the benefits of working in that smaller setting? So part of it is the variety that the role affords, which we've already discussed, and the autonomy that I've been given to develop the work. So because we're so small, I chat often with the senior leaders and from day one at Guildhall they were asking me what my plans were for access and we've always had that two-way trust which I really value and it's really enabled me to get creative and make a difference but the other thing and probably the main thing for me is just how rewarding it is to meet young people before they go to university who are so talented and they're so motivated and to be able to offer them that extra layer of support that helps them realise their dreams. So if they then become a student at Guildhall, we keep in constant contact with them. They drop by and let us know how they are or they're coming if they need some support or just just a cup of tea, they'll drop by. Um, and we also get to see the work that they're producing. So we go to finally our shows and concerts and we see that end product. I recently watched the first cohort of supported application scheme students graduate. So these were young people that I spent the lockdown with, the first lockdown back in 2020. We spent so much time on Zoom doing workshops, audition run-throughs, well-being activity. We were doing yoga classes and quizzes. Um, and I got to watch them cross the stage with their families cheering them on four years later. And it was just really emotional. I just, I just love that side of it. We have such a brilliant relationship with our students. And James, if someone was contemplating becoming an access and participation professional, what are the sorts of skills or motivation that you'd be looking for from them? So I'd want to see a real understanding of the issues first, ideally from first-hand experience, uh, but not always necessary. It just has to be a deeper understanding than, than just simply finance is a barrier. Because it is, but that's fairly obvious. Um, there's a lot of breaking down preconceptions, dealing with different sets of knowledge and skills in communities and knowing how to tailor information to meet an audience's need, sometimes even within the same talk you are delivering. So it's important to have that really developed and nuanced understanding or at the very least a willingness to understand. And the other thing that I've found is an ability to bring people along on a journey is invaluable too. Historically, universities have been elite and some of the systems and practices are still hanging around, but allowing the various moving parts at your institution to see why it's important to make a change is how things will start to happen. And it helps in embedding access as a whole, rather than just the work of a department or a small team. And what would you be looking for, Ashley? So the number one quality that I'm looking for is unauthentic passion. Um, I'm giving away my secrets, but I always ask at the start of an interview why somebody is applying for a role in my team. And I ultimately need to say that they understand and wholeheartedly believe in equitable access to education. I hopefully it's coming across from James and I that we're so passionate and that's what we are looking for. Ideally, some lived experience is helpful. That ability to relate to the young people you're working with is key. 
Um, I'm under no illusions that I've got less in common with the young people that I work with now that I'm a little bit older. I'm working in performing arts where I definitely don't have a performing arts background, but I can still really relate to their experience of coming from a more working class background of the education system that they are experiencing of having imposter syndrome in certain places um, and of overcoming obstacles that might be in the way to your future. Um, and I'm so open to sharing my background with them and having that two-way conversation. Aside from that, I think being personable and approachable are key communication traits and you really need to be responsive in a fast-changing environment. So the events and projects that we run are unpredictable, nothing ever goes to plan, never goes perfectly and you've got to be able to pivot and not panic. If you're panicking, it's not going to help at all. So yeah, that's an essential skill. So you've clearly got both got demanding roles in your institutions, but I also know that you're involved in wider sector work and partnerships. Ashley, have those opportunities been important to your professional development? Yeah, they really have, Susanna. I am such a sector busybody. Um, I initially joined the Hello London committee because I just moved to London and I thought it would be a really fun way to make some new friends and to enhance my CV a little bit. Then I moved to Guildhall not long after and they weren't actually a member of Haloa. So I made it a condition of joining that they would sign up to Haloa um, so that I could continue with this role that I just started that I knew was going to be really important. I was the only access and participation professional at Guildhall for two and a half years. So it was a really essential network for me to share best practice, bounce ideas around and have the occasional rant because sometimes what we do is a bit difficult. Um, I was then elected to be Hello London Group Chair and that came with trustee responsibilities. So it was a great way to contribute to the national HE landscape, to meet colleagues from a huge variety of institutions across the UK and understand sort of charity compliance and strategy as well. Um, but one of the most valuable roles that I've actually done is being one of the conveners for the FACE Access and Participation Plan Special Interest Group. Um, the conveners that I'm working with have such a wealth of experience and they're so generous with their knowledge and time. I'm really appreciative of it because I'm still fairly new to access and participation regulation and the Office for Students side of things. And there's so much to understand and it really helps to just have somebody that I can turn to to ask a dumb question and no one's going to judge me. And then through that role, I've been able to plan and support activity for other access and participation leads, contribute to shared responses to consultations and regulatory changes, and support a cohesive collective voice for the sector, specifically those of us on the ground doing the work. It's been really great to amplify the voice of small and specialists in a meaningful way, and for Guildhall to be contributing to the broader HE sector as well. And James, how important is that sort of wider work and sector context for you? For me, it's an absolutely imperative part of working for a small specialist. We're far too often overlooked and forgotten about in policy and regulation, or just expected to comply with what's expected for our much larger peers. Often we simply don't have the capacity or resources to do that, or we have to do it and it's meaningless work ultimately. Um, and handily, it's how Ashley and I met in, in the Zoom chat of an online conference. Um, so it, it really... There's so much benefit from being part of those conversations and getting your face and your name and your voice out there. Um, it really helps to build some really wonderful relationships in the sector. I'm 
I'm going to take us back now to the topic we talked about earlier and the real challenges there can be for young people in state education to access performing arts activity and the impact that has in turn on access to higher education conservatoire study. And I'm wondering, James, does lobbying play a part in the wider work that you and your colleagues in institutions undertake? Absolutely. And anyone who knows me knows I'm never afraid to roll up without with my soapbox and my small specialist flag. The arts are an integral part of so many people's lives, but there needs to be more recognition for how skilled and disciplined our creatives and performers are. They aren't easy careers. Um, it's more than a hobby. So to see what's happening to arts and education in schools is absolutely heartbreaking. And if we don't help challenge that as arts educators, then who will? And Ashley, what about lobbying with bodies such as the Office for Students in relation to making sure that access and participation plan requirements are actually meaningful to conservatoires? Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that the Office for Students know who I am at this point. Um, It is a little bit of a running joke that I have a lot to say about access and participation regulation. Uh, But I can really see the difference that the feedback that we're giving sort of with and on behalf of small and specialist institutions is having on the guidance. So certainly this iteration of the access and participation plan guidance, it's reflect small and specialists and the unique challenges that we face and so it is working and therefore I'm happy to keep putting myself out there asking the difficult questions always constructive questions um, and just making sure that yeah small and specialists have their unique place in higher education sector and that we are able to do our jobs well and that we're reflected in the guidance that's coming out of the office for students. In finishing up our conversation, let's focus on the medium term future, some hopes and aspirations. We've obviously got an election coming up soon, and I've heard recent interviews with Keir Starmer that he wants to turn around the deprioritisation of music and the arts in the state schools, which certainly gives me some hope. James, what are your medium term hopes and aspirations? I'd really like to see a better and less London-centric funding of arts provision that's done in a sustainable way. I know that's starting to happen, but it's not happening in a way that's healthy. I believe it's possible, but there needs to be real and meaningful conversation between educators, artists, creatives and government to bring this about. Every child across the country deserves easy access to high-quality art. It shouldn't be reserved for those who can afford it. We know that having access to, de- to this develops so many skills that aren't just beneficial for a career in the art sector. So many employers now expect creativity, collaboration, curiosity, and we de- develop that so easily through art. And how about you, Ashley? Yeah, I'd love to see a more joined up approach. So those really clear links between schools, colleges and universities, the charities that are lobbying for the arts and the professional industry that we're all sort of feeding into, just to ensure that we're training young people to go into an industry that they can thrive in. Um, So we're never going to reach a point where everybody has equitable access to the arts if we don't work in a cohesive way. Ashley, James, thank you so much um, for talking about this really important topic and letting me shadow you today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for listening to Job Shadowing HE. The podcast was written and presented by Susanna Marsden. Audio production and music by me, Rodri Marsden.
More information about this podcast and previous episodes can be found at jobshadowinghe.podbean.com.